I mentioned last week that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, is full of phrases and quotes that have bled into our modern language. Uh, And today we come to our first one, one that I didn't think of or mention last week when I rattled off just a few. Uh, And maybe you noticed it in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, Today, if you say that someone is salt of the earth, you'd be describing someone uh, in general terms who is honest, humble and hardworking. I think that more or less sums it up. Uh, I think in today's language it also means probably someone from the working classes or who, uh, or who works outdoors, more likely. So I can imagine farmers and labourers being called salt of the earth. I struggle to imagine many politicians uh, or lawyers or even, I'm sorry, to, to our white-collar professional friends, uh, engineers... Just that sort of schooled, head knowledge type of thing um, just doesn't usually quite earn the label uh, salt of the earth. But I think it's fair to say in the way we use the phrase uh, salt of the earth, uh, it rests more on character than circumstances and so possibly uh, maybe an odd, unusual politician might one day earn the title of being salt of the earth, uh, probably if they speak with a bit of slang or some rough edges. Uh, But maybe you see it differently, but I think I'm in the area of what most people mean when they say it. The question is, of course, what did Jesus mean? Do we mean the same thing as him? Well, when you think about Jesus' audience, uh, and we've talked a little bit about this, there is a chance that he means something similar. Uh, Remember, he is operating, uh, I don't have a map to show you today, but he is operating in the north of Israel, where Jerusalem and the sort of civic centres are in the south. Uh, Jesus is in the regions, in the farming areas. He's, he's out there with the peasants and the labourers and, of course, the fishermen. Uh, much of Jesus' appeal throughout his ministry was among the working and the lower classes. The, the elites of society tended to view Jesus either as a curiosity or a threat but certainly not as someone who was inspiring or speaking to them, Uh, although, of course, he was speaking to them, but it was easy uh, for the privileged types to to push his teaching away. Uh, But here's how I would summarise Jesus' teaching, actually from verse 13, 14, 15 and 16, where he says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. I'd summarise these things together as something like this. Jesus saying... If you belong to me, you belong to my kingdom. You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. You belong. You are rich. You are glowing. And therefore, you must live in such a way that people are improved by knowing you and God is praised because of you. Uh, These are my words, but I think they're a reasonable summary. If you belong to me, you belong to my kingdom, you are rich and radiant and glowing, therefore you must live in such a way that people are improved by knowing you and God is praised because of you. And that's a high calling, isn't it? That's actually something inspiring. That's something that everyone, no matter their class or station in life, could aspire to be. Uh, You might have uh, a broad circle, you might be uh, on Instagram and Facebook, you could be an influencer Um, and you would have, uh, and there would be good reason to use your uh, privilege and your position as the salt and light of the world to do things differently and radically and to promote what is good and true and right. But you might be a very ordinary person with a very small circle and your job remains the same. 
to improve the people who know you and have God praised because of you. Uh, And in all of this, Jesus is granting you both identity and purpose. And the two go together. But the problem is, without a sense of identity, many people are lost. People are so sadly confused these days that they're questioning and experimenting with all sorts of fundamental aspects of their identity. But Jesus gives you identity. You are light. You are salt. And he gives us purpose. And without purpose, uh, many people are lost. Uh, Because without a point on the horizon to aim for, you don't know where to take even your very next step. Uh, There's 360 degrees in a circle. That's about 360 points on a compass. Without purpose or direction, the chances are better than even that you're going to pick the wrong one if you don't know which one you're meant to walk towards. But here's your identity. You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. And here's your purpose. Live in such a way that people are improved by knowing you and God is praised because of you. Or to quote Jesus, which is probably better... Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, The language and the images that Jesus uses are rich and poetic. Uh, He doesn't speak in particularly literalistic language throughout this sermon. He is is an, an orator. Uh, he, is, uh, he is speaking with passion, he's painting pictures so that we can uh, piece together and feel as much as understand what it is we're driving at. Uh, he speaks uh, in a way that is inspiring. And so uh, we, we're probably doing it wrong if we get too granular in the details of understanding his metaphors, but uh, it's helpful uh, to, to do this to a point. And so I'll try and do it to that point and no further. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. What does he mean? Why does Jesus say salt? And there's three possible reasons. Uh, Salt was a valuable commodity. Uh, It was used in trade. The word salary comes from the Latin word for salt. Uh, And still today we talk about whether someone is worth their salt. Um, So it's, it's a way of denoting value. Uh, In days before refrigeration, salt was used as a preservative. Uh, You'd cake your meat with salt, you can salt vegetables to keep them longer Uh, and of course when you do these things it has an effect on the flavour of the food as well. We use salt as seasoning uh, whereas they used it as a a preservative but even if you use it as a preservative it's going to have an impact on the flavour. Everyone knows salt is tasty, it it enhances natural flavours and it just tastes good. People even put salt in baking and in caramel and on chocolate. It's inspired, isn't it? It just brings everything out. And I think Jesus used the word salt poetically to draw on elements of all of the above. I think all three feature in there. I think, I think personally, mainly the bottom two. But, you know, this is poetry and we can, you know, it's not quite right to score it with numbers. But, for example, if we come to the value thing, if Jesus is telling you you are salt of the earth because you are valuable... Uh, That might raise a a certain question. Well, sure, I get that salt is valuable, but I can think of lots more valuable things than salt. Even a peasant could do that. Uh, Like, if you want to tell me I'm valuable, why don't you tell me I'm gold or rubies or something like this? 
But again, since he's talking with poetry and imagery, there's a chance that Jesus talks about value in terms of salt instead of gold because salt would have talked more, spoken the language more of the people he's talking to. But I reckon gold would have spoken their language too, even if not as much of it passed through uh, the, the hands of the lower classes. But I do think his emphasis is on these bottom two because of what Jesus says in the rest of the verse. He says, if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. Now that reference to losing its taste uh, and what salt is good for, it says up there, uh, that seems to me to be linking this image of salt to something intrinsic to the qualities of salt, uh, even its chemical properties, more than uh, the value we bestow on it, which is why I think it's more about the bottom two, because there's something just about salt, not just its value, or how we see it, but what it does and how it works. In fact, uh, it's interesting here, the Greek word in the original text uh, that talks about lo- the salt losing its taste, uh, most other times that same word gets used throughout the Bible in the New Testament, it means foolish. It's translated as foolish. It means something literally more like empty or vacant, so you can imagine an empty head is a foolish person. Uh, but empty salt is, is worthless salt. Uh, and so I suspect for something like salt to become empty or foolish, it would mean for that salt to be contaminated. Because salt can't actually become unsalty because salt is salty by nature. But I think he's talking about contaminated salt or maybe diluted salt, something that's been laced with something else to make it go further or by accident because you spilt a bit in the dust and no one will notice because it looks the same. Uh, which would, of course, if it's diluted, cause it to lose all three properties, but I think uh, most immediately those bottom two, the fact that it's a preservative and it gives flavour. In the preserving sense, as individual Christians and as a Christian community, we should have a stabilising rather than a destabilising influence on our neighbours. Do you remember in the Uh, in the Beatitudes we looked at last week. Blessed be, blessed be, blessed be the peacemakers. Blessed be those who show mercy. We should have a stabilising rather than a destabilising influence on our neighbours if we are salt and we are preservative. We should build people up. We should avoid things that degrade like gossip or slander. We should provide material support for people who need it. We should uh, care for vulnerable children. We should volunteer as time allows. We should work hard with our hands. You are salt of the earth. Preserve it. Do good in the earth. Help and benefit the people around you so that they might praise God. Glorify your Father in heaven. Again, there's a flavour aspect. If we do all this, we'll make ourselves interesting, fascinating, a curiosity, in the sense of a, a good flavour. See, in, in the event that I have a good cut of steak to cook on the barbecue, I salt it beforehand. Not because I need salt's preserving qualities anymore, thankfully I have a fridge for that, uh, but because the juices of the meat draw the salt molecule inward and it improves its flavour. If I'm on a road trip, I love my caffeine and my sweets and snacks like the next guy. Uh, But sometimes it's the zest or the tang of salty chips that is enough on its own to invigorate me in the moment. 
Imagine if you lived in a world, just imagine this, if you lived in a world or worked in a workplace where everyone was out to beat everyone else. And so people cheat and cut corners and gossip and slander and nations are at war with nations because everyone's out for themselves. Can you imagine a world like that? Imagine it. And then imagine the actually really real impact that just a small number of scattered people could have if they just speak salt and light and kindness and stand by virtue instead of expediency and serve others and can somehow live in that world, in that environment, but not be tainted or darkened by it. By the way, historically, there's multiple factors, but one of the big ones, this is how the Roman Empire became a Christian empire. Because small bands of Christians loved and served their neighbours and rescued orphaned children and steadfastly, in spite of persecution, they did this again and again and again in such a way that their neighbours were eventually peacefully won over. They were compelled by the salty way that these people lived. And I imagine most of us can think of important individuals in our own lives who have inspired us with the brightness of their grace and character uh, in contrast with the world around them. Think about those people. Maybe thank one of those people if you can think of them. I've concentrated on salt, but light uh, works in a similar way. In fact, in the Gospel of John... uh, In its introduction, it speaks about Jesus in this way. It says, he is light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Even a well-lit room has bits of shade in it, because the light casts shade. But in a well-lit room, we don't notice the shade, do we? The shade doesn't bleed out everywhere. The shade is contained and the light overcomes. But even in my bedroom, with all lights off and all blinds closed, if I turn the air conditioner on, there's one little green light that almost lights up the whole room, in a way, once your eyes adjust. You cannot overcome even a speck of light in the darkness. But light overpowers darkness. The light overpowers darkness in a way that darkness doesn't overpower light. Wouldn't it be better to belong to the light than to belong to the dark? And I think, like really technically speaking, it's Jesus' light that we're being asked to shine. Uh, not our own individualist light, not, our own, not to show off our skills or, uh, or our curiosities or our personality, Uh, It's Jesus' light, which is our light, that we are to shine. And I think I can say that pretty confidently because it says that we shine that light before others so that they may see your good works and not think you're a great guy or not think, uh, gee, I want to get to know her better, but they'll see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, that people will see in you something that can only be there because Christ is there, shining his light, and you are shining that, uh, his light. And so, 
live in such a way that people are improved by knowing you and that God is praised because of you. You are the light of the world so that others will bring glory to your Father in heaven. We'll move on to the second half of the passage. I'm not going to spend heaps of time on it. Uh, Many people have heard of Mahatma Gandhi. In the last century, he was a successful activist in the campaign for India's independence from British rule. Uh, Even if you're, like me, less familiar with the geopolitical context of his life and have to look his page up on Wikipedia, uh, there is a good chance... Uh, that his picture or his name invokes in you at least his reputation for being a spiritual leader, someone uh, who uh, was high in moral virtue uh, and strove to be pure and good <clears throat> in spite of a dark world. For example, he would, rem- he would have to remain, I think, one of the most high-profile pacifists, people who refuse uh, to resort to violence, uh, even in the face of injustice. Uh, In passing last week here at church on Sunday, I also mentioned that Gandhi was a fairly famous fan of Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount, even though Gandhi himself was a Hindu and never became a Christian and had no desire to become one. So I did a bit of digging and I found a couple of quotes and I found uh, that Gandhi's view has a lot in common with a very typical modern view as far as people these days are actually familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, a lot of people I come across as tend to think in a similar way to him. His understanding could be fairly summarised as this. Old Testament, bad. New Testament, especially the Sermon on the Mount, good. Have you heard that? Does that sound familiar? Maybe you even, in the back of your mind, although you might not say it in this church, you might even kind of feel that way yourself a bit. Um, And there's certainly many people uh, who identify as Christians these days who uh, brazenly say this sort of thing. The Old Testament, is that's a bad text and we don't focus on that. The New Testament is the good one. But here's, here's Gandhi's own words in some of his writing. He says, I could not possibly read through the Old Testament, although in the end he does say, I plotted through. Uh, But he says, but the New Testament produced a different impression, especially the Sermon on the Mount. It went straight to my heart. And then this, he says, the New Testament gave me comfort and boundless joy as it came after the repulsion that parts of the Old Testament had given me. Why should I care what Gandhi, a Hindu, thinks about Christ's Sermon on the Mount? He's not our authority on this, but he's an interesting guy and and a powerful guy and impressive. Give credit where it's due. Uh, I mean, phenomenally impressive, really, in terms of what he accomplished. Um, the fact uh, that, but here's the thing. Here's why I think it's it matters what Gandhi thinks. The fact that someone outside the camp, so to speak, who's not even a Christian, uh, likes the Sermon on the Mount, that's compelling, isn't it? It's it doesn't prove anything, but it, it's interesting that other people and comforting that other people who may not share our other core convictions would look at it and say, "Yeah, this is a this is a beautiful piece of work." It's a sort of a proof of broad appeal. Uh, but also this, which I indicated before, Gandhi's view of the Sermon on the Mount is, is fa- fairly well known and fairly common. It's helpful for us to know his view and, and where it matches up with others. His view very closely mirrors broader society's view of Jesus and his teaching. And as I said, it goes for Christians and non-Christians to an extent, this idea that Old Testament is bad, good, New Testament is good. The Old Testament is boring, 
primitive and God is not very likable, kind of angry and wicked. Um, but the, in the New Testament, we have an attempt to revise and sanitise the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament is a sort of a PR exercise, trying to clear up the image of an old angry God, uh, revamp his image with Jesus, who's more earthy and kind and speaks about nothing but love. I think I've made the point. Why does Gandhi's view match the modern view so closely? Why is this such a common view? Is it because um, uh, he's right? Uh, Is it because he's wrong, but his view is well known, uh, and so he's influenced others? Is it because he's wrong, uh, and everyone's wrong, but his view, this view remains attractive for some reason. There's something that's convenient or appealing about being able to dismiss the big, long, boring, dry, tricky bit of the Old Testament. I'm speaking in popular language, not in my view of the Old Testament. Uh, but weirdly, part of the reason that so many people feel this way, particularly about the Sermon on the Mount, is, lies in the Sermon of the Mount itself. So if you have your Bible open in Matthew chapter 5, uh, it might be helpful to look there, but I'll, I'll illustrate it on the screen. Jesus speaks in the rest of chapter 5 in a particular formula where he says, you have heard that it was said. And then he quotes parts of the Old Testament. He does it six times. And then he says, but I say to you... And so this formula sounds like Jesus is saying, well, you have heard that the Bible, the the Scriptures, the Old Testament says this. We don't do things that way anymore. I say to you something different and fresh and interesting and better. That is one way you could interpret it. That's certainly the way it looks as you read it initially at first blush. That Jesus is rewriting or at least revamping the commands of the Old Testament. And this might be an appealing interpretation too for all the reasons I said before. If if Jesus gives me a license to not have to wade through three quarters of a thousand page book, then that's kind of handy okay? Um, If Jesus uh, gives me an excuse to not have to explain or justify uh, some of the tricky, curly, apparently immoral stuff in the Old Testament, then that's kind of convenient. But there's a problem with all of this. In today's passage, still in Jesus' introduction of his sermon, Jesus totally rules out that possibility. He tells us, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on to say, Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is really doubling down here. He is saying that whatever you may have... Because remember I spoke about last week, why is Jesus in the mountains here? Um, And I think there's a couple of possibilities. It may be that he's gathered such a crowd that he doesn't fit in an auditorium anymore in the first century and so they just, for convenience sake, they've had to go where they can fit all the people. But there's a chance that Jesus is already a bit on the nose and he's not being invited into the public spaces anymore because uh, the powerful ones are saying, no, 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 don't listen to Jesus and all the people who are feeling a bit crushed are thinking, oh, they're saying I shouldn't listen to Jesus, maybe I should go and listen to Jesus. And so maybe there's already this sense that uh, this new young guy on the block uh, is, um, is a danger. Uh, and so he's been pushed out there. And maybe people are saying all sorts of things about him. Maybe people are saying, watch out for Jesus. He's abolishing the law and the prophets. Don't follow him. 
he's come to abolish them. Maybe that's what he's heading off right here. There's these rumours that are circulating around him. Or maybe he's trying to head off the rumours that would circulate based on what he says next. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you this. But this is an all-encompassing statement. He is very firm that we are not allowed to interpret anything he says as anything other than being perfectly consistent with the teaching of the Old Testament. Gandhi and anyone else who thinks New Testament good and Old Testament bad has misunderstood Jesus and the New Testament. They've misunderstood him. And they've actually failed to give credit to the good of Jesus in the New Testament because here is Jesus, this guy that they think is good, saying, I'm all for the Old Testament, by the way, these scriptures. I'm not changing it. When I was about 18 or 19, I started studying optometry. Uh, and uh, and uh, on work experience one day I sat in the chair and the optometrist I was observing tested my eyes and I read uh, very well to the bottom of the chart with one eye and then he covered the other eye and I was like, oh, what have you done? <laughs> it's blurry, it's fuzzy, I can only get this far down. And that was uh, one of the many times I realised I'm not perfect uh, and, uh, and I had one eye that was beginning to weaken Uh, And then I became an optometrist and I worked as an optometrist for several years and I was able to squint enough to get away without having to give in to glasses uh, because I'm a a good optometrist like that. Uh, And then then I went away to study theology. And uh, and one of the things they taught us uh, was uh, the basics of the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek. And suddenly I couldn't avoid it anymore because both Hebrew and Greek languages have very small markings uh, and the way that they're shaped kind of matters for how you pronounce and understand it. Uh, And those things I just couldn't get away without glasses anymore. So that's when I started wearing glasses. And and iota is like the letter I. It's the the smallest uh, letter in the Greek alphabet. But these dots and, and, and things, these markings and breath markings and emphasis markings, they're everywhere. And I just couldn't, I couldn't bluff anymore. And Jesus is saying, not even one of these things is going to change. He's not changing anything here. He's doubling down on the scriptures. I'm not going to say heaps more about that today, except that we need to keep this in mind when we come to the rest of the passages. That Jesus is is standing, he doesn't see himself as breaking in any sense from the, from the tradition or teaching of the Old Testament. Please understand this point and embrace it, no matter how uncomfortable it may make you. Jesus' life and teaching fall in fluid lockstep with every writing in the Old Testament. This point, by the way, also lies behind the first stuff that we looked at today about uh, being salt and light. Uh, This is all perfectly consistent with Old Testament teaching. If you were with us, uh, I think it was just last term, we were doing... uh, No, it was a bit before that. We did the book of Genesis together. And this is something that God spoke to Abraham in chapter 12. He said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Here I am blessing you. 
And as salt improves and preserves, and as light gives light and safety and sheds light on truth, then I am commissioning you to bring salt and light into the world and to bless and improve others through knowing you so that they may bless God and glorify him. Jesus is absolutely in lockstep with the teachings of the Old Testament. One thing that this all means, that Jesus has come to fulfil the Scriptures. By the way, uh, I'm using the word Old Testament or Scriptures where uh, Jesus uses the word law or the prophets, which is their way of saying all of the Old Testament. Sometimes they just say law, sometimes they just say prophets, sometimes they just say Scriptures, um, and we have our own language, uh, which pretty well matches up with that. Uh, But there's a variety of ways in which Jesus fulfills this stuff. Um, uh, The most uh, radical sense is uh, the predictions that were made about the Messiah who would come. Uh, Born of a virgin, God with us. Uh, Jesus came uh, and uh, made God known to us uh, and gave his life for us. Uh, And he fulfilled them in that way. But when it comes to these commands, uh, the teachings, the instructions, how does he fulfil them? Well, in a couple of ways. One, he keeps them. He kept them perfectly. He always did what was right. He always got to the heart of the law and he obeyed it fully. And the other thing means he's done that for us so that we uh, can... uh, so that we can access God's righteousness through Jesus. He gives us his obedience in place of our disobedience. He gave us his life in place of ours. But just because Jesus has obeyed where we cannot does not mean we don't need to obey. He says, If anyone relaxes, one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, he will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so, friends, in the coming weeks, as we look at Jesus' moral instructions that are to follow, there is a high calling. There is an awful lot of grace for all of us who have fallen, but there is a high calling where we are actually being asked to live this way. And it's quite exciting. And we'll begin on that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you that uh, through Jesus, uh, the Old Testament makes so much more sense. Thank you uh, for the Old Testament and the scriptures that uh, prepared and uh, paved the way for Jesus so that uh, through the script, the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus can make so much more sense and help us to be a church that faithfully handles all of your word. Father, we thank you for uh, the identity and the mission that you've given us as salt and light uh, to improve, uh, to be a, an improving and preserving agent uh, in the world and among our neighbours. Uh, Help us to uh, live this way with your grace, by your spirit, for the sake of your glory. Amen.